everybody to another episode of Going for Two, the official podcast of Extra Points. I am your host and uh, publisher of said newsletter, Matt Brown. I'm joined as always here by Brian Fisher. And Brian, we have a fun guest today. We're, we're going we're gonna to talk to somebody that has a lot of experience in a world that I just don't know all that much about. Well, it, it, we are going to discuss amateurism with with Katie Lever and, and dive into a, a very interesting topic. But, but before that, I, I do have to kind of go back to another topic that you don't know too much about. Apparently, you're a soccer fan now of, of the U.S. national team uh, based on <laughs> this weekend. Yes, I, I, I am. We'll, we'll, let's talk about that. Right. So for, for those of you that don't know, my name is Matt Brown, which is super Anglo. But most of my family is actually from Brazil. Right. My, my mom immigrated to this country. My uncle actually briefly played professional soccer, but it was really important to my family that we assimilate. We become American. Right. Which is why I've got the super gringo name. And I grew up in Bumblefart, Ohio. And, 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 and part of why I was attracted to college football, because that's super American. So I became like the world's worst Brazilian and that my Portuguese is atrocious and I didn't follow soccer very much. And, but every once in a while, besides the World Cup when Brazil was playing and, and then there, that was like a rare opportunity for ethnic expression. But just as I had completely disengaged the my, my my actual country the americans they, they go and and do something entertaining right like they're the, that was that match against mexico was the most college football soccer game i think i've ever seen in that it, it ended at midnight it was for a, a postseason event i've never heard of it was completely stupid and i have never been more emotionally involved well, and, and I think every for, for those that really do know soccer very well and, and CONCACAF, which is kind of our governing body that, that we play under, uh, it, it does have very, very many kind of Pac-12 after dark vibes where, where it's, it's late at night and you just see something strange and weird and, and you love it. And that's kind of what we saw on, on Sunday with the U.S. national team and a big victory for, for I think, soccer in this country, not only to, to get the win over our, one of our biggest rivals in Mexico, but the, the, the emotions and, and, and seeing a, a team win, even even if it's a created trophy that uh, from a competition that we've only known for three or four years now, uh, I think the excitement around that having a world cup in a couple of years, uh, having a world cup in this country uh, down the, not in, in not too distant future as well. I, I think it does all kind of tie into the, the fact that uh, th- there is a lot of crossover between the, the sport of soccer and, and I think uh, American football as well, because there's so much passion tied to those teams that you have a connection with. And whether it's Brazil, whether it's the you know, U.S. national team, uh, you know, I'm German, so I ha- have a connection with with the German national team as well. So it, it just it's just fun to see. And I think it's, it's going to be interesting to kind of follow because a lot of those athletes that are out on the field, they, they could have been playing for U.S. colleges, but they're not. They, they went a different route and they kind of sidestepped the amateur system that we're going to talk about with, with Katie here in just a little bit. Yeah, that, that is one of the things that is, is interesting to me about soccer. It's something I'd like to learn more about. And, and I've, I've tried to reach out to a couple of coaches because so many of the debates that are so centered around college football and men's and women's basketball are really sidestepped in a lot of ways for a bunch of other sports. But, you know, certain baseball is, is kind of one of these, but you're, you're right. You can be an international class soccer player and skip college in, entirely. I don't think there were very many American college products um, on, on the U.S. national team um, earlier this week. We might increasingly see this even on the women's side as professional options and, and academies continue to develop. That didn't make this product less fun. Now, you might argue that maybe, I mean, college soccer is may, might be less fun be, be, because of that, but it's not like it was ever really a big deal in this country anyway, unless you are, go to UCLA or North Carolina. Well, um, even this yeah. week, I saw earlier this week, there there's uh, talks about creating another, almost a, a third tier, I think, it is third tier uh, women's league uh, and and part of the deal with that is also that they want to retain the amateur status so uh, people coming up can can still play in the NCAA if they if they need to if they can go different routes so I, I think it's, it's a topic that even when we talk about uh, the sport of soccer or in the professional nature of of things like that there, there are still some ties in this country in particular to amateurism and, and maintaining that that I think we're we're going to get into as, as well the issues and, and the thorny uh, issues that uh, a lot of the athletes and the schools face as well. I, I, I want to say that th- th- didn't something like this happen with men's soccer before? I have vague memories of 
I want to say BYU and some other Western college team ending up playing in a league with like quasi semi-professional people. And it wasn't NCAA, but it was kind of college soccer. If you were a club team and I, I know that there are some like third division teams. Like I, I want to say there's one in like boo North Carolina. That's like, well, we're just going to make our colors and our badge very Appalachian stad steady. And there's going to be some like, players on this team that went to Appalachian state, but it's not going to be Appalachian state um, as a way to kind of meld those two things. You, you, you could be creative and, and get around it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I was reading the other day about, uh, you know, some of the student athletes that have been stuck, you know, overseas due to COVID and the situation that they had. And, and there's been the NCAA has been exploring some waivers because they basically had to play on some semi-pro teams, you know, overseas uh, just to be able to play. I mean, it's it's been difficult to play sports in this country, much less, you know, you go into Australia or you're in Slovenia or other places. And, um, you know, the NCAA is really sorting through a lot of those waivers uh, regarding some of them that maybe they did have to play, you know, two or three games just to, just to stay in shape. And so that kind of does get, get back to the concept of it would be nice to be in a world where they, the NCAA didn't have to sort through a lot of these waivers for these kids so they can still get that educational opportunity here in the United States uh, for, the, for the next semester. But it's, it's not where we're at right now because we are sorting through some of those, those thorny issues uh, regarding amateurism. No, I, I, man, I, I understand that everyone's got a job to do. And I, I honest to God, do not think people that work in compliance departments or work in Indianapolis are soulless Pinkertons. I really don't. There's, there's some true believers there. A lot of those folks really honest to God think they're doing the best thing for college sports. I cannot imagine getting up and saying like, all right, my job for today is to comb through this footage and determine if this league in Slovenia was just professional enough or not quite professional enough to meet this, this, this benchmark that we set here. I feel like as soon as that question enters into like your world, that should trigger some other kinds of questions that would prohibit you from going through there. But that's bureaucracy, baby. And that's what some of these rules that we set up here require us to do. One of the things that I think is interesting about this conversation here with, with, with Katie Lever, because she has a lot of experience, again, going back to two things I'm less familiar with. One are the historical origins of this entire concept, because we invented college sports, kind of, but and we, uh, the world, we Americans here, we didn't invent the concept of amateurism. That came from somewhere else. And Katie wrote a story for, for my publication about this, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, and then Katie was also a college athlete herself. She ran at, at Western Kentucky. Um, she was uh, competed at a level of athletics that neither of us did and, and knows about how all of these debates um, impacted her day-to-day -day life as somebody who was still a high-level college athlete, but not somebody playing for Alabama's football team, which I think is important to, 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 to look at in a little bit more detail. Uh, so why don't we go bring her in? Uh, and Brian, we, we can talk more here about, about international soccer a little bit later, but let's, let's bring in Katie and, and, and have her talk about some of those things here with us. Katie, thanks so much for hopping on here and chatting with us. One of the things that, I mean, I, I always love reading your stuff and there's a reason that you've written for extra points here for several times, but one of the things that I think makes you so interesting when you talk about the history of amateurism, when you talk about college athletics is because you we're also a college athlete. You're not just some egghead nerd like Brian and I writing for our basements. You've lived, sorry, Brian, um, you've, you've lived a, a lot of these things, right? Like where, where, where did you, um, where, where did, where did you compete for the, the folks that are less familiar with you? So I ran track and cross country for Western Kentucky University, which is a little, um, well, we're not too terribly small, but we're a mid-major university in Southern Kentucky. And Bowling Green, if I remember correctly. So yes. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, what, why, why Western Kentucky? Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you ended up there um, and, and, and we can talk about what that experience was like. Yeah, so uh, my mom was military growing up. And so we were moving every, you know, two to three years at the most. Um, I've never stayed in one place for more than four years. The, the time I spent in Bowling Green was the longest stretch of time I'd ever been anywhere. And that was six years for undergrad and grad school. Um, and so we landed in Fort Knox, Kentucky, and then eventually moved to Elizabethtown, Kentucky, my senior year or by, uh, during my high school career. And so geographically, it was just really convenient. I'm also a third generation Hilltopper athlete. So like my, my mom tried not to pressure me 
me and she did a pretty good job of that. But there was, you know, I, 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 I'd grown up going to Hilltopper football games growing up. So um, I, I was just really familiar with the, the, with the location, with the campus. They had a great, they still do have a great broadcasting program. And that was my initial draw to the university was I wanted to be an ESPN analyst. That was my dream. Um, and so I quickly learned that I'm way too intro uh, way too introverted for that. I don't like seeing my face on a screen. Um, and so I was like, okay, this is not the career for me. And I ended up switching to communication studies because of an NCAA rule, um, because I ended up switching halfway through my uh, sophomore year. And according to Prog uh, progress towards degree rules. If I had switched to a different major, it wouldn't have been enough of a pro of progress towards my degree. So I'd be under that 50% threshold. And so communication studies was kind of a last resort, but that was how I stumbled upon um, researching the NCAA now. So it's funny how things work. <laughs> it is. And well, had I known that 15 minutes ago, maybe I would have let you turn off your face <laughs> during this interview. I'm sorry we're recording. No, Zoom has taught me to be more comfortable with that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's shock therapy here, I'm sure. That I mean, that I, that's a really interesting story. I mean, it, it, it is difficult if there's another school trying to recruit you to, to compete with the fact that your grandfather competed here and you had parents that competed here. Uh, the, the academic angle here, though, is interesting. I, I'm just did any of the other schools that are reaching out to you try to specifically pitch here? Here's, here's what our communications program is able to do for you here. Here's what you're able to do completely independent from your identity as an athlete was or was it those conversations, even at your level, still mostly focused towards here's the role you'll have on our team. Here's how we see you performing here and, and here's how you can reach your athletic goals. So recruiting tends to be very athletic oriented, which I don't think comes as a shock to anybody. Um, but, you know, your coach is essentially acting as a salesperson in that recruiting time window. They're showing you the highlights of the campus. They're showing you how much fun college is. Um, and I've heard stories like this from other athletes where they didn't really talk about academics at all. There was one school that I went to. Um, I almost committed to Tennessee Tech. I was really, really close with them. Um, and their coach, Tony Cox, is awesome. He's retired now, but he was he was really great. And he was very transparent about, you know, we don't have a broadcasting program, but we have a really good award-winning journalism program. And so we took the time to, to look around those facilities and, and the buildings and everything. Um, and Western, it was just really convenient because they lined right up with what I wanted to do at the time. But I've heard all kinds of recruiting stories where academics just aren't mentioned at all. And that's honestly just ironically such a big blind spot in college sports is that emphasis on academics. It's that I'm a, I'm almost a little bit surprised to hear that. I mean, Brian, you you, you and I have talked about this, and I know, I know you've written about it, particularly on the on the high profile male sports side. Um, coaches are are very happy to talk about whatever they think what sells the institution, whether that's academics or how. Listen, this is a this isn't a four year commitment. This is a forty year commitment here to this state institution, and here's what the alumni network, and here's what all the bells and whistles, and all these other things here can do for you. And and, and then to, to hear you, and, and this is not dissimilar from even other Olympic sport athletes that that I've talked to, where that's generally not as not as much of 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 the conversation. And at at this level, where there's not millions of dollars in broadcast fees at stake, you would think that it would be a more holistic sales experience, but it doesn't sound like that was really the case for you. Yeah, because um, I've heard that a lot about the higher profile sports as well. Um, you know, we see this a lot in football and men's basketball, um, you know, which which is problematic in and of itself. Um, and I, I was just really lucky that I had a school where, you know, selling the academic program was really, really easy. But uh, just a big issue in college sports in general, I think, is how loose recruiting requirements are. You know, there's not any kind of checklist that coaches have to go down where they say, OK, you have to tell athletes about time commitments and you have to tell athletes about academics. and You have to tell athletes about travel schedule like there's no there's no checklist. And so um, transparency is a huge issue in recruiting. Brett, does that track with what you've heard about recruiting for either uh, high profile sports or, or other ones in your experience? Well, I think it always depends on the school, the, the coach and, and whatnot. And so that that does play play a huge factor. And I'm curious, Katie, with being uh, you talk, we've talked about the, on this program before about equivalency sports. And I'm curious how you've noticed how recruiting in those sports has, has maybe differed from the high profile ones that fans are usually used to with football and, and men's basketball and whatnot when it comes to recruiting. 
Yeah. So I remember when I was being recruited, because I've heard all kinds of things about, you know, I mean, like the Louisville, the, the basketball stripper scandal and all of that. Like I've, I've read about those and I've heard about those. That was not my personal experience in recruiting. Um, but I mean, they treat you very, very well. You know, they'll take you to restaurants around town. Um in Bowling Green, we had a bowling alley, we would take recruits to, but like we would have fun with them and we would, we would try to, you know, give them a taste of what the team was like and try to make them feel as welcome as possible. Um, so I think it depends a lot on your location too, and just what is available and what is around. Um, I think it depends on team culture too. That makes a huge difference. Um, but yeah, it, it, it depends is a good answer to that question. <laughs> You know, going going back here a minute a minute ago, you were telling us that you became much more interested in studying the NCAA and studying college athletics holistically and historically after this major change, which you know ironically was was in part tied to this this NCAA bylaw. Thinking back to your experience as an athlete, do, do you recall many of your teammates being really interested in any of this big picture stuff, or was that much more? I'm just I'm fully focused on my next race and my my the, my training and or whatever's happening over the weekend. Yeah, I think one of the one of the best ways that the NCAA has kept athletes quiet is by keeping them busy because we just, you know, we never had any time to do much of anything outside of our schoolwork and our sport. Um, and I don't know if that was why we, we never really engaged in, in the really cool activism that we're seeing right now. Um, I do remember one time, this is more of a problem with the institution, um, but our track programs budget was cut in half my, uh, I think it was my junior year. We had a huge budget cut and the rest of the department had like a 2% cut. So that was when we kind of engaged in some activism and we were like, like we went to the press. And, and so that was, it was, that was the most excitement that we ever had on our team, but we had never really questioned not being able to earn any money for our NILs. You know, I've turned down a lot of coaching, private coaching opportunities just because, um, you know, name, image, and likeness rules. I've also turned down a lot of prize money at road races, which is a shame because I was in the best shape of my life in college. I could go out to pretty much any road race and win. Um, now I, I cannot touch my times at all. And so it's like, I gave up so much money just because the NCAA said that I had to, and we all just kind of accepted it. We, we just, we were just like, yeah, these are NCAA rules and they're kind of a pain, but you know, what can you do? This may be a stupid question because I have not really looked at, I mean, my, my, my time as somebody who ran and cared about my time was maybe 50 pounds ago. Um, how much money are you are we talking about for, for winning road races? Is that like a $50 prize, $100? I mean, even for an undergraduate, $100 is still a lot of money. But what, what, how much was potentially on the table for like a really good conference USA track athlete? It really, it, it depends on the race. You know, if you were to go to some big cities, some of these races, you know, they can have hundreds of dollars in prize money. Um, one of the best cases for allowing college athletes to profit from their names, images, and likenesses actually comes from Mondo Duplantis. He's a professional pole vaulter now, but he was a vaulter for LSU. And Flowtrack says he had to give up about $80,000 in prize money leading up to his college career just to preserve his amateurism status. So there's a lot of money out there for Olympic sport athletes to make. And I think one of the biggest oversights in the NIL conversation is that we're not talking about women and we're not talking about Olympic athletes nearly enough because, you know, Trevor Lawrence and Jalen Suggs, like, yes, they have a ton of market potential and it's really easy to, to, to seek that out with them. Um, but so does the All-American volleyball player who has 100,000 Instagram followers. So there, there's just so much potential market potential for athletes. I'm curious, you know, kind of going back to your, your story and when you made the, the degree change, when it came back to kind of studying and discussing the NCAA, who did you go to? Did you, was it talking with your compliance officer that was, was on campus or how did you kind of get back into studying you know, what was actually going on with the NCAA and how those rules related to you? I always tell people that it was a bit of an accident, um, but I, I don't I actually don't think that it is. I think I had somebody in my life that just really believed in me and really helped me figure out what I want to do. And I think everybody needs that kind of person in their life. Um, but mine was Dr. Angela Jerome, and uh, she is a communication professor at Western. And I remember my um, my first semester of grad school, I was just hanging out in my office and she pops her head in and she was like, 
so what are you going to study in grad school? And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, you need to figure out a research interest and specialize. And I was like, Dr. Jerome, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I don't even know if I'm cut out for grad school. Like I was having all of these doubts and I was in organizational communication at the time. And she was like, she looked at me like I was a moron. And she's like, Katie, the NCAA is an organization. You're a fifth year athlete you can study the NCAA. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. That's really cool. So, <laughs> so she really pushed me in that direction. And I'm glad that she did because that was the first time I'd ever actually opened an NCAA policy book for myself because, you know, like I said earlier, athletes are so busy. Like we just, we kind of take what our coaches tell us to do and run with it. You know, we don't have time to read the division one manual. It's like 400 pages. So, um, so we just listen to what our coaches. And I don't always have time to go, go through that. And that's part of our job. It, it's, it's not, not exactly. a fun read. <laughs> I don't recommend it. No. Um, so yeah, we just, we, I, I never had time to actually look at the rules and I was just like, this is just the way that it is, but learning to think critically about things and to dig, you know, beyond the surface and to question and complicate things a little bit in grad school has been just one of the best lessons in life that I've ever learned, you know, to stop taking things at face value and to, you know, to question things and to stand up for what is right in these situations. I, I'm, I'm really glad that you had that experience on the academic side, because something that's come up with some of the conversations I've had with athletes is that you don't always have that. And it's seldom that that person comes from within the athletic department. It's rarely a coach. Um, and it, and, and I've talked to athletes that they're, they're, they finish their, they're nearing the end of their eligibility. They finish their eligibility. They don't even necessarily know about jobs that exist within college sports, let alone about what they can use their, their, their academic training for, you know, moving on. Do you know if any of your teammates were able to have you know, similar success stories within somebody within the institution advocating for them, or did they experience some of, some of these struggles as they completed their careers? So I went to grad school with one of my teammates and she was in the psychology department, but she has a similar story to me. Um, and, and honestly, though, she's the only one that I can think of that had a lot of institutional support. There were maybe maybe a couple of of sprinters. Um, they were really close with some of the academic um, compliance kind of people. And so they would get, you know, letters of rec and things like that within the athletic department. Um but but it's it's a big problem in college sports that there aren't a lot of career resources for athletes. And you would think, you know, with the NCAA's emphasis on on education and on getting a degree and getting a career that they would be more proactive about that. But it's it, it's definitely a need because I you know, I, I personally I really do feel like. I stumbled into where I am today and that I got very lucky. I, I, I worked hard along the way, but, you know, I, I had no idea what I was doing. I, I went to grad school because I had a fifth year of eligibility that I wanted to use, you know, so um, so a lot of it was just being in the right place at the right time. And that's just not a good method. That, that's interesting. I mean, on one hand, we could look at, I think, what happened with you as a example of how impactful that fifth year of eligibility can be and how that expands grad school access to athletes who might not necessarily think about going down that path. I mean, that's something we certainly see a lot with, with basketball, both with men's and women's basketball. But that only reason that turned into something is because maybe fortuitously you had someone to kind of push or direct you in, in the right way. And if you were just choosing to go down that fifth year just for athletic reasons and not really aligned to a career goal, maybe that isn't as impactful as we'd like it to be. It kind of seems unfortunate that what you're describing, that happened almost more by chance rather than something that was directed by an institution or by some other outside force. Is my understanding that right? Yeah, I didn't have any kind of a five-year plan, um, you know, and, and I'm a big planner. I'm always like, okay, what are we doing next? Let's get this on an itinerary and figure it out. Sure. But I was just, I was so consumed with my sport, you know, that, and, and that's another thing too, like when you're a senior um, and you need to start getting on the job market, it's hard to find time to, you know, fill out applications and go to interviews and, and you know, spend money on, on business attire. It, it's just, there are a lot of career implications that I think go unnoticed. And I, I, I feel extremely fortunate um, to have landed where I landed, but it, it definitely wasn't intentional. I, I want to talk about that a little, a little bit more. One of, one of the things that 
I, I, I'm so interested in your work and in some of the work I, I think in some of your colleagues and other researchers is because we talk about college athletic reform. So much of it right now is in the context of name, image, and likeness. And you've been an advocate and a researcher for, uh, you know, that that is a principle that could benefit a pretty expansive pool of athletes. That's something Brian and I have talked about. It's something I've written about, which is great. But particularly in your last story here for extra points, but in some of your other work, you've talked a lot about how college athletics reform should be more expansive than just this particular component of, of, of economic exploitation. And it sounds like your experience as an athlete would have informed some of that, because here you are, if I'm, you know, forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth here, I, I, I read that you're not at a huge budget, gigantic, big institution. You're not at an enormously, um, uh, you know, at, at a sport that, that attracts a ton of media attention, there's not $10 million riding on the track and cross country program here, but it, you, it sounds like you spent 30, 40 hours a week on, on, on your sport when, when you were in season, if, if not outside of the season, right? I would imagine that Im- impacts a ton of your college athletic experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I do a lot of writing for a company called LRT sports, which is it's a resource for athletes to increase transparency in the recruiting process. And when I talk to recruits about what it's like to be a college athlete, I always tell them your sport is your job. I actually, I had a teammate who described it as as a triangle. He said that you can have a social life, a solid sleep schedule, and a um, and good grades like those are your three options, but you can only have two of them. Um, and I was like, yeah, that that's that's pretty accurate um, because you really do have to kind of pick and choose uh, um, how you spend your leisure time, and and you have to make a lot of sacrifices. My my coaches used to tell me, you know, you have to be selfish here. Like you have to, um, you really have to preserve time for yourself to commit to the team, which is really more of a way of saying, you know, you have to commit that time to us. Um, but it really, it really is a job and it, and the training level is very intense. Um, and yeah, I mean, NIL is, is the very start of college sports reform. Did, did any of your teammates work? I actually, yeah, I had, so I worked as a research assistant. Um, I had a 10 hour a week assignment um, because that was really all that I had time for. And I I was, I was in the broadcasting department anyway. So I was already reading and researching some of the stuff for my classes and just kind of overlapping with that job. I actually had a teammate who was a walk-on and she was a referee with uh, rec sports. So we did have a couple of things. Oh my gosh. Yeah. She got, oh my gosh. She had so many stories. (laughs) It's like, why? are you doing this? Yeah, that'll, that'll um, but yeah, so she, but I mean, she would stay up until, you know, 11 or 12 at night refing a game. And then she would get up at five in the morning for practice. And, and, you know, you're expected to do this at the division one level while maintaining an academic load. And it's just, it, it's not a realistic model. It, it's very, it's very difficult to do. And it's why a lot of uh, a lot of high school athletes, um, you know, don't don't make it to any level of college sports. It, it's difficult D1, D2, D3, wherever you go. So it sounds like that experience that, that you were just talking about really kind of dovetails nicely with kind of the roots of amateurism itself. It, it was it was essentially very much based in, in the separation between the classes. Um, if you can kind of dive into what you, you wrote for it from Matt on Extra Points on the origins of, of amateurism for us. Yeah, I'm so glad, Matt, that you um, that you gave a platform to this article because I have been drafting this in my head for years um, and I finally got to put it on paper because um, it, it it really bothers me when people talk about amateurism like it's this nice, happy, fluffy little concept or, or even that it's something to be respected and revered um, because it's actually very problematic. So like you said, it has its origins in, in 19th century England when you know sports were becoming more accessible to more and more people. Um, and then the upper class athletes found that, oh, we're intermingling with poor folks and we don't like that. Um, and so they created these different classes, the amateurs who were well off enough to not have to rely on any athletic income. And then the professionals who who did have to earn money for their sport in order to survive financially. Um, And so there are all kinds of different layers of intersectionality within that too, because, um, you know, women for one thing were not included at all. Um, White men at the time were better off than, than black men in, in England. And so, you know, there was some racial stratification there as well. And so it's a really just 
absolutely. I mean, to, to put it frankly, it's, it's just a gross concept. Um, and, and, but we're seeing a lot of these, um, a lot of these bills that are, that are that are being pushed through at the state and the federal level that are supposed to protect amateurism or preserve amateurism. And it just, it makes my skin crawl because I'm just like, you guys don't know sports history um, and you're making the rules. And, and that's, it's, it's a little bit scary for me. You know, it's a very exciting time in college sports reform just because there's so much going on. Um, but at the same time, I'm just like, are the right people making these decisions, especially if they're trying to preserve a construct like amateurism? There's a reason um, I don't, I mean, I, I, the reason I don't use the term student athlete on, on extra points. And I have tried to remove that from my vocabulary. It was something that I, I, I did use to say without irony or, or without any sarcasm, you know, college athlete seems to be a, a more apt term, I, I think, to just to, to describe it, right? I, I'm not, I'm not going to say professional and then get every athletic director who reads and listens to this podcast screaming at me, but like that there's, there, that's, that's, it's a loaded term that has, that has some history. And even I, I, we didn't get a chance to kind of dig into this here, I, I think with your story, but, and then if you look just within the United States, this, this very explicit class issue with amateurism has, has come up a lot as, as we do as, as as we argue about what are the acceptable terms of compensation you know from, from what i remember you had the big 10 and and some more industrialized northern institutions that would say like the athletic scholarship itself is an affront to the concept of amateurism and they should and athletes should work through their board well it's a lot easier to get a fake job in columbus or minneapolis or chicago than it is in Starkville. And you, I, I think you find right Southern institutions were more on the forefront of saying like, let's end this stupid charade. And, and we also don't have the economy to produce these fake jobs. Let's just give people scholarships, right? Like this, this, is, this is just the 1800s England argument you know, gone through the spin cycle and spit out again in a way that that makes sense in a rural uh, South versus industrialized North, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And it's so interesting that you bring up, you know, different economies here, because I I think there's a lot of money to be made in in dropping amateurism. Um, You know, we're seeing name, image and likeness laws being used as um, recruiting inducements right now. And we're seeing how, um, you know, how athletes, they, they could they could boost local economies, they could help small businesses. So it's it's ironic to me that there's so much market potential in college athletes that could help the economy. Um, but amateurism is being used as this, as this buffer to it. Like, no, we can't, we can't do this because of amateurism. And that's always essentially the argument. It's like, why can't we do this? Because amateurism. And, and it's just kind of, it's kind of this golden calf concept where you just can't argue with it. And so I'm, I'm glad it's being challenged. Honestly, I, I think it's about time that, you know, people start challenging it. and you bring up the term student athlete. I'm so glad that you don't say that. Cause I only say it when I'm directly quoting NCAA policy, um, you know, kind of for similar reasons, because it, it's just an ideologically loaded term. Um, it was originally designed to deny college athletes uh, workplace uh, compensation and workplace rights. And so, you know, the more we, we, we say these things and we reiterate these constructs, the more ingrained that they become. Um, so yeah, I'm always, I'm always all, all for a college athlete. I think the, um, the college athlete right to organize act had the phrase college athlete employee, which I absolutely love. Um, and Chris Murphy is also very intentional about not using student athlete. He always says college athlete. So I'm, I'm always all for that. Well, what's always interesting to me is, is we've already kind of gone through this conversation before with the Olympic movement. I, I mean, you go back years and years and years ago, you had to be an amateur to be in the Olympics over the 60s, over the 70s, into the 80s. Even that conversation evolved. Are, are you seeing any parallels with, with ha- what happened on the Olympic side and, and what's happening now with the NCAA and, and kind of the general conversation around amateurism? I see more resistance in college sports because I think there's a lot of nostalgia tied up in amateurism and this idea that, oh, college athletes are playing for the love of the game. And that's really sweet. And they just, they love their institutions so much. And so I think there's a lot of tradition in it. I think there is a lot of nostalgia in it. And I think that those two things kind of come together with institutional control and makes it really, really difficult to uproot this construct. And I think that's why it's been so ingrained in college sports for so long. Definitely um, at least a contributing factor is just the romanticism behind it. 
Did you would you say you ran for the love of the game? Did you run for the, the glory of all of all state you or or you know thinking back on it, I trying to part the clouds of nostalgia? What, what, what was how, how, did, how did you feel about it when you were 20? I I had a love for my sport for sure. I actually I had kind of an unhealthy relationship with running and that I was very obsessed with winning and that I would put my body through anything to win. So it got it got obsessive and it got unhealthy. Um, at the root of that, there was a lot of love and respect for my sport. Um, but you know, I was also a scholarship athlete. And so I, I did view it as my job. I was like, I need to show up and clock in and clock out and, you know, do well in races and score at conference, or I'm going to lose my scholarship. Um, I always felt such a relief, a sense of relief at the end of the season, if I scored at conference, cause I was like, Oh, thank God my scholarship is secure for another year. You know, because if you score at conference, you would get your scholarship renewed. Um, and so there, there was an element of enjoyment in it. And, and I do, there are parts of it that I still do miss. Um, but you know, the, it, it was definitely a job and I definitely took it very seriously and, and too seriously at times. I, the, the idea of this being a job is, Something I think I want to maybe unpack a little bit more real quick, because when, when I've talked to coaches and I, I've looked at their team handbooks and you listen to the speeches across different sports, there's all kinds of terminology that comes from like jobs, right? Road, you know, road games are business trips. Uh, individual athletes are encouraged to do their job vis-a-vis their position assignments or their responsibility to learn team rules or, or execute. From an outsider, it seems like a lot of the language of professionalism is kind of co-opted in, in, in your responsibilities as, as an athlete. Was that something that, that you saw in, in your experience? Like, I, I know it seems like you internalized this. This is a job I have to treat it as such. Was that ever made explicit um, through coaches or your community? I'm so glad you brought up the business trip metaphor because I had a coach who would tell us exactly that. You know, he's like, we are not here for fun. We are not here to have a good time. We are here to show up and do work and leave. And that was that was the attitude. And even just little things like, you know, like team meetings and things like that. I know that that's a, a pretty broadly used term, but it, it it has a corporate undertone to it. And it had this understanding of if you don't come to the team meeting, there will be consequences. And I think what's so different about athletics in that context is that it is work, um, but it's so much more overtly physical than other work. And so it's not just, it's not just mentally exhausting, it's physically exhausting. And then you have universities with different access to mental health resources. And, and so you just have, it's just really, a great environment for mental health issues to pop up with athletes because so much of their identity is tied to their sport. There's so much of their financial future is tied to their sport. So there's a ton of pressure and not a lot of places to go, uh, to go with it. Um, and so the, the pressure can just get really, really intense and overwhelming really fast. I I'm just, I'm imagining that is an especially toxic cocktail for people who are 20 or 21 and 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 correct me if i'm wrong here i'm guessing most of your teammates were the best runners in their county right not you know are the best runners from their school they've been successful a lot of them are probably pretty good students uh, this is something that that's come up a lot that college athletics can be the first time that many of these individuals have really failed in anything or just completely got their ass beat and if you are kind of wired that way I, I mean i can imagine how that would that could play an enormous bent in your psyche is it was that something that you ever saw oh i experienced that personally um because i came from you know a small town elizabeth town kentucky is about as small of a town as it sounds um yeah. and i was you know i was all district i was all state um i was actually a softball player for a long time in high school and i i ended up switching to track and i just took off and i was like I like being a really good runner as opposed to a mediocre softball player. So let's go with this sport. Um, And so I I loved winning and I love being on top. And, and I I had some failures in, in high school track. You know, I, I never won state. I was, I was in the running to win state twice and I blew it both times. Um, But then I went to college and, and I wasn't even in the front of the pack. Like I was in the back of the pack and I I didn't adjust well either. Um, I went to a smaller school. Um, My track team 
my track and cross country team, we were good, but we weren't great. And so I was always kind of like the lone wolf who would make it to state or who would, you know, make it to, to regionals or whatever. Um, and so it was really difficult when I went to college because I wasn't used to I wasn't used to being as successful as some of my other teammates with more resources and more experience were. And I took it really, really, really hard. Um, I remember at the end of my freshman year after a, a conference meet that just was not great, my coach came up to me and she was like, Katie, this is your warning year. If you blow it next year, I'm going to pull your scholarship. So that was where I was like, okay, we're not messing around and I got to, you know, I got to get it in gear over the summer. And then I did. And I trained really, really hard that summer. So I, I, I mean, fear tactics work, I guess. I don't know. Um, I don't think they're healthy or, or good, but um, you, you know, you do have coaches who will refer to that scholarship and they'll say, Hey, you know, I'm going to wave this over your head and you need to get in line. Um, and that just adds a whole other layer of pressure. And it's a lot for, you know, you mentioned age. It's like, yeah, 18, 19, 20 year olds. It's just, it's, it's a lot of responsibility and a lot of pressure. And I think people lose sight of that. Um, Cause I mentioned in my piece about how, uh, you know, athletes tend to be targets of, of death threats and just really nasty messages when they mess up. And it's like, they're human, they're, you know, they're adults, yes, but they're, they're really young. They're doing this for the first time. Um, and I just, I just don't think athletes are, are humanized enough. I, thinking back on that, on, on those experiences there where you were facing that level of pressure, would you have, if, if somebody from like your coaching staff or from like within the track and cross country program had offered some kind of specific mental health or like sports psychology assistance, would you even have wanted to take it? Or would you have been like, this is admitting weakness. I don't want anybody from the coaching staff to know that I'm, I, I'm, I'm struggling. I mean, it seems like even if you were, were coming at this with the right intentions, the execution could be pretty challenging given this culture that you've described. Yeah, there's there's a lot of pressure in athletic circles to be tough and to be strong and to gut through everything. And people think this is only, you know, like a football player thing. It's like, no, this is across all athletes, all sports, all genders. There is just a pressure to be a machine, you know, to be tough and strong and resilient. Um, and I, I do remember during our compliance meeting, because we always had these like eight hour compliance meetings at the beginning of the academic year. Um, we had a counselor come in one year and, oh yeah, they're, they're absolutely ridiculous. But, <laughs> but we had a, a counselor come in one year and just like describe mental health services to us. And that's the only time I can remember being encouraged to seek out mental health care. And that's obviously going to vary among universities. Um, but Kate Fagan wrote a really, really good book called What Made Maddie Run. And she really does dives into just the issues of mental health services on college campuses in general, how they're, you know, really overrun and how insurance might not cover them in the long term. And so like, there's just a lot of problems with mental health services on college campuses in general. And then you add in that athletic proclivity to just gut through everything and not, not talk about your emotions or how you feel. Um, and, it, and it's a difficult situation. So lots of athletes, they either don't seek out mental health care because they don't want to be viewed as weak or they just don't have a vocabulary for it. Because, you know, for me, I, I didn't know what anxiety was. Like I knew I was on edge all the time. I knew I was stressed out, but I just didn't think it was anything to be alarmed about. I thought like, this is normal. This is just what being an athlete is like. Um, and so I think that normalization of everything also plays into it. That's a good point. Um, Katie, I, I have, I've, I've really appreciated this conversation. I think this gives some, some extra context to, to some of these issues and humanizes a little bit more. Brian, was, was there anything here that, that, that we, we missed that, that you wanted to bring up? No, I, I, don't, I don't think so. But uh, I am curious, given everything that is going on in, in this space, what do you kind of foresee for the next not only month or two with with the Alston ruling and all those impactful uh, bills that are coming through Congress right now? What, what is kind of the near term future for amateurism and, and the NCAA in, in your mind and kind of where does it kind of go from here long term as well? Yeah, eventually. I think we're going to look back at this time period. There's going to be an entire generation of people who are like, wait, college athletes couldn't get paid. Like that was a thing. And we're going to be like, yes. <laughs> and, and you know, the, those kids or whatever, they're going to just look at us like we're crazy because how could college athletes not get paid? Like, how was that legal? Um, I think it's going to be a gradual battle still, you know, because um, we're still looking at state legislation. We've got that July 1st deadline coming up. A handful of states 
are on deck to enact name, image, and likeness rules. There are some loopholes that I could foresee in those um, different bills, uh, you know, where coaches could potentially apply pressure. They could bench athletes who want to do that kind of thing. And so um, there are certain loopholes that could be exploited. So it might not be the kind of waterfall or watershed moment that the NCAA thinks it's going to be. Um, and then, yeah, we have federal bills that are on deck. I do think one is going to be enacted. I don't know which one yet, um, but I, I think the NCAA is going to have to gradually just acquiesce this power, um, but I think it's going to be a struggle, and I think the next logical step after NIL is athletic employment. Well, if there's one through line through, the, uh, through everything I think we've talked about on Extra Points and on this podcast, it's that billable hours are the true undefeated force in college athletics. And Katie, it sure sounds like we're going to see a hell of a lot more billable hours in the next couple of months. Um, thank you so much again here for, for hopping on and chatting about your story, which we're going to link to here in, in the show notes. But um, if, if our listeners are interested in learning more about some of your other work in it, and, and you're, you're doing some interesting work here at Texas, and if people are interested in this scholarship and, and digging into these issues more, where can they find more of what you're doing? I'm active on Twitter, probably a little bit too active on Twitter, um, but you can find me. That handle is Lever Fever. Um, just my last name and the word fever. Um, that's also my Instagram handle. I'm not on there quite as much, but I do post my content there. Um, you can also find me at lrtsports.com. I write for The Huddle, which is the LRT Sports blog. Uh, lots of stuff about NCAA policy, what's going on with NIL. So you'll find a little bit of everything there. That's wonderful. Katie, thank, thank you again. We'll, we'll make sure that that's all in the notes. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I look forward to publishing more of your work uh, in the future. Yes, thank you all so much. You bet. This week's episode of Going for Two is brought to you in part by the Athletic Giving Handbook. We talk a lot on this podcast and I talk a lot on the newsletter about a lot of behind the scenes business issues that shape all different kinds of athletic departments, whether you're Alabama, some gigantic Division I institution or a smaller NAIA school, everybody right now needs to figure out how to make more money or how to do more with, with less money. Uh, and the Athletic Giving Handbook is a tool to help everybody involved understand uh, better, easy to follow step-by-step -step instructions on how to evaluate and improve your departmental fundraising, while also still being flexible uh, and, and having adaptable templates for you, which you can use to build an operation that works best for you. Um, the template that works best for the big school might not be the same template that works if you are a regional Bible institution in Oklahoma or a research powerhouse out west. Um, the Athletic Giving Handbook Guide uh, includes information about giving materials, how to identify potential donors, how to collect data, how to cultivate major giving pipelines, and more. And honestly, some of this stuff might be of use even if you don't work in college athletics because uh, most of us on some level are involved in sales. I have a link to the book in the show notes here. You can reach out to the author, Dr. Dan Freeman, at yourathleticgivinghandbook at gmail.com. If you pick up the book, um, you can get a free consulting session with Dr. Uh, Dr. Freeman. Take a look at what you're doing to raise money for your organization. This podcast, uh, like all the other podcasts, is also still brought to you by Extra Points. The, uh, that's the newsletter godfather of this whole operation, publishes four days a week and goes into all sorts of behind-the-scenes, off-the-field issues that shape college sports, whether it's name, image, and likeness legislation, whether it's small conference or big conference, conference realignment, uh, whether it's looking at coaching contracts or apparel contracts, or some of the, the big-picture higher education or policy administrative issues that help determine whether your team is going to be good. All that stuff comes out four days a week. We have original reporting, we have expert analysis, and we have new angles on things that you didn't know that you needed to know. And if you are listening this far in the podcast and you're not a subscriber, what are you waiting for? This is exactly your kind of stuff. This is going to make your email inbox a brighter place. And you can find that at extrapointsmb.com. Typically it's eight bucks a month. I'm gonna let you in on a little secret because you've listened to this ad read for several seconds. If you use promo code podcast at checkout, whether you do a monthly subscription or the $75 a year annual subscription, you use promo code podcast, you're gonna get 20% off. So you're gonna get a newsletter that's going to enrich and entertain and make your inbox better four days a week for under six bucks a month. 
that's a great deal. You can head on over to extrapointsmb.com to support what Brian and I are trying to do. Use promo code podcast and get the Extra Points newsletter in your inbox, the full experience uh, for the least amount of money possible. Yeah, so so going back, I we recognize that this is a, a challenging time for college athletes under, under, under all circumstances here. I also think it's important to, to re-highlight not just the historical through line for how we got to these things. And that doesn't, in my opinion, I think I'm, I'm probably a little more conservative than Katie is about some of these reform efforts, but it's important to understand the historical context to how we get there. But I think it's also important to recognize that context is more than just name, image, and likeness. Whether a federal bill gets signed the next couple of months and we start writing about something else, that doesn't mean that like college sports is fixed. Um, even if name image like this goes off without a hitch, which it probably won't. Um, <laughs> I, I think some of the other battlegrounds here that Katie's talking about, whether that's full employment or whether that's just revision of time commitments and mental health services and the student experience, I think those are going to be the next battlegrounds in, in the reform movement, right? Yeah, I mean, we've been we've been talking about this, the, these concepts, you know, in, in general for 120 years. I, I don't see that stopping, you know, at any time soon. There's going to be changes and there's going to be reaction to those changes. And we're kind of going to move on from there. But, uh, you know, this this is a concept and, and, and really a topic that is near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. So it, it's going to bring out passionate responses on on multiple sides. And so we're, we're going to keep seeing that it is a, a summer of change uh, for the NCAA and, and a lot of people involved in college athletics. And we're we're going to we're going to get past it. There's still going to be games this fall. We're still going to move on. Everybody's going to enjoy this and, and hopefully getting back out and into full stadiums and, and rooting for their, their schools and whatnot. And, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll get past this. It, it's not uh, not going to be a death knell in college athletics. Some people are going to go on Twitter and say they're never, never going to watch a game again but then they're going to go watch a game again. And so uh, people are terrible at at predicting their future consumer behavior. Yes. And, and so that, that all ties into what we've been talking about and and hopefully we will continue to explore because it is a a hot topic as we've been mentioning on this podcast several times, and we will have several more podcasts about these topics uh, to come because uh, it is a constantly evolving subject. And one uh, I look forward to exploring even more over the coming weeks and, and months this summer. I know that, that with the NFL draft done and, and your, the, the magazine now in convenience stores and gas stations and, and, and everywhere, everywhere, where, what, what are you going to be doing next? Where can, where can people find you? Where are you publishing beyond this exquisite podcast? Yeah, we'll, we'll keep the podcast going. And, uh, you know, as always, uh, follow me on Twitter at Brian D. Fisher for uh, anything that might pop up. I'm, I'm sure there are topics that are worth writing for, but it is a, a bit of a slow time. Go out and pick up your, your Athlon Sports magazines. We, we got the, the college football preview issues. Uh, on there you can go on athlonsports.com to find links to order them as well so a a great summer companion whether you're out at the beach or whether you're hiking or or whatnot uh, you're you're stuck on a plane whatever it might be this summer a a great companion to get you interested in the fall season and uh, we've got nfl copies coming down the chute as well so a busy time to to get those out the door but also a bit of a time to take a some some uh well-deserved r&r as we kind of recharge our batteries and what we anticipate being a a very uh, healthy and and interesting college football season. Friends, I think that's great advice. What you should do is you should read the app on Preview Magazine. You should go outside. You should stop reading everything with the exception of extra points as that comes out. And you should enjoy a lull in your schedule uh, before we go uh, completely crazy here for college football in a couple of months. You can continue to find me uh, at MattBrownEP on Twitter.com. I'm at uh, ExtraPointsMB.com for the Extra Points newsletter. Um, I will also be taking about a week or so off. I'm flying out to Salt Lake. I'm going to do some hiking. I'm going to go see some family. Um, I'm Mormon, so of course I got family in Utah. Like, you know, that's that's, that's, that's kind of how it goes. Um, And I think if I write newsletters during those couple of days, I'm going to get in big trouble. Uh, But I'll I'll, I'll be around and I'll be newsletters publishing and uh, there'll still be stuff for you to engage with. So uh, thanks for listening. I think this was fun. We'll be back in touch with you next week. 